Now we have the opportunity to come together for the preaching of God's Word. And as we are doing so, and as we are thinking about this upcoming account of the story of Cain and Abel, I was wondering how many of us have, at some time or another, started something with the greatest of expectations, only to have the script flipped on us. A vacation that is supposed to be smooth sailing becomes a rainy misery. And I was even thinking as MJ was leading us in the song, that last song talking about Emmanuel, which means God with us, and how God with us, this coming Messiah, was nothing like what the people expected. God is very good throughout the pages of Scripture, and you will see this time and again, and we'll see this even in our first 11 chapters of Genesis, that God very rarely chooses or uses the one that you would expect. The first and most obvious choice is not often the one that ends up going, going forward. And this morning, we are going to get into one of the reversals that just seems so unexpected. And you'll understand what I mean when we get to talk about who Cain was. But every parent has, or at least should have, the, the greatest of hopes and expectations for their children. But when it came to the first human offspring, the first brothers, this Cain and Abel, things most definitely did not turn out as planned. So I'd ask that you would open your Bibles with me and come to Genesis chapter 4, page 3 in those pew Bibles there, and we're going to read the account of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 will be starting in verse 1 and running through to verse 16. So Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through to 16. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. I want us to remember that as we have gotten to the end of the account of Adam and Eve in the fall and their subsequent expulsion from the garden, that we've been left with a profoundly different picture than that of the malicious and vindictive God who so often becomes the, the caricature that we have in this narrative of the curse and of the fall, that God is just there ready to to smite and joyfully kicking Adam and Eve out. Yes, God dealt seriously with sin. His consequences were severe. They were driven out of the garden. They were sent away from his presence. But the story did not end there. In addition to that, we also see a God who created and provided and then also called his people to repentance. A God who provides for his people even in their sinful state. And most importantly, he promises that there would be a resolution that Adam and Eve, along with their offspring, they may suffer the effects of the curse, but they do so with a promise that one day the woman's seed, her offspring, would conquer the serpent and one day set things right. So even though Adam and Eve had been justly punished for their rebellion, their faith continues. Adam calls his wife Eve, which literally means life demonstrating faith in this promise that God has given them that they would bear children, and particularly that there would be this promised child. So it should come as no surprise then that the first thing that we have Adam and Eve doing post-expulsion is fulfilling that mandate from Genesis 1.28 where God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This was all in fulfillment of that mandate where their redemption was to be found. They knew that their redemption was supposed to come from a promised child. So they got right on having children. And by God's grace, they are given two sons, Cain and Abel. And just the names that are given to these boys gives an idea of how imminently Adam and Eve expected this promise to be fulfilled. Cain's name appears to be kind of a play on words. It's very, very close to the Hebrew verb for had or gotten. Hence Eve saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And the expectation is, I am promised that my offspring will have this altercation with the serpent so 
I have gotten this man. Cain was this first opportunity for God to fulfill his promise through the seed given to the woman. And it was also, Cain was also concrete confirmation that God would indeed provide offspring. He was the fulfillment of a problem, of a promise. I will give you offspring. Interestingly then, Abel's name takes on a bit of a different meaning. Abel means breath or vapor. It's often used of the morning mist that would come up and would burn off in the heat of the day. It is fleeting. As we know from the story, his life was fleeting. His name becomes prophetic in a way that I don't think anyone would have anticipated, and it makes you wonder if they didn't expect, well, we have Cain. Cain is this fulfillment of that promise. Abel kind of becomes a spare. Abel became a shepherd, Cain a farmer. In verse 3, we are told that in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord. As is often the case in these early passages of Genesis, we don't have the explanation of how they knew to bring an offering to the Lord or why they brought it, what the circumstance was. But is enough for us because it was enough for the original audience. It's Moses writing to his people here. He didn't feel the need to explain why they brought this offering. It was enough for them to know that they did. And I have heard no end of speculation as to why one brother's offering was accepted and the other's wasn't. The first, especially knowing where things would go from here, the sacrificial system that was coming, Was it because Cain brought of the fruit of the ground, likely grain, and Abel brought of his flock a blood offering? And remember that it was Moses who was telling this to his audience. And while the offering of animals, the blood offering, was the most common. Grain offerings were also acceptable in the time and were not given a, a reason for them bringing this offering. So we can't assume that it is just because they, one brought an animal and the other brought of the fruit of the ground. Both men were bringing offerings suitable to their vocations. Abel was a shepherd, so he brought a sheep. Cain was a farmer, so he brought grain or other produce. Maybe God just preferred one offerer over the other. Maybe he just liked Abel more. But we know that our God shows no partiality. That is repeated in a number of passages throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 10.17, Acts 10.34, Romans 2.11. Our God is not a God who chooses favorites based on a person's individual attributes. God doesn't look and say, I like him because he does X. If God chooses, 
he chooses according to his purposes and his sovereign will, not because he's playing favorites. So God doesn't like Abel because Abel brought something that he liked more. Maybe God just preferred that one offering over the other. But we're not yet given, as God's people would be many years later, a framework for how offerings ought to be brought and which offerings when. There was a whole process for that later in the story of Abraham and the people of Israel. But we don't yet have that framework. We're not given it in the passage, so we shouldn't assume it. It doesn't appear to be the type of the offering. But what about the heart behind the offering, the condition of the one bringing the offering? This is the most compelling one because Moses goes out of his way here to describe the offerings brought, especially Abel's. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. The word used for offering here kind of implies at least an acceptable offering of the right nature. So he brought of the fruit of the ground. But of Abel's offering, he says, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And that firstborn and fat portions, those two are like sandwiched together in the original text. It's trying to be hyperbolic. It's like this is the absolute best of the best of the best. He brought the best portions of his flock. Cain seems to have just brought some. Abel brought the best. And it's possible that this doesn't even fully cover the details of why God chose to regard Abel and his offering while not regarding Cain and his, recognizing that God is saying that he had regard for the person bringing the offering as well as the offering itself. And that points us to the fact that maybe it has more to do with the person bringing the offering than the offering itself. But what we do know is that God chose to regard Abel's offering and not Cain's, and that is enough. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. When God commanded Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. God could certainly and justly have just left that commandment there. But he didn't. He went further and announced a potential consequence for what would happen. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But it is not for us to call God to an account. God has chosen to say, I have chosen to regard Abel's offering and Abel, not Cain and his offering. And in those kind of situations, 
we particularly like to become these arbiters of God's decision, going, I don't know if I agree with God on that one. And obviously, Cain didn't agree. Well, one of the clearest examples that I have of how that whole process, that whole making judgments as to why God would do what he does is the account of Job. And Job in chapters 38 and 39, he goes on. In 38, he says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job has been complaining and bringing his case before the Lord. And we get these seven verses and then the Lord goes on for another 60-some verses before we get to chapter 40. And in chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And then God launches into two more chapters of the same. Who are you? And the answer here and always is that no man, no one has ever known the mind of God. No one tells God that he ought to do or not do anything. And if God decrees something or does something, then he as the creator and sustainer of the universe is well within his rights to do so. As God Almighty, He can do it. Adam was told, don't eat of the tree. Cain was told, I don't accept this offering. And then God goes on to say, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous, between Adam and Cain, between Jew and Gentile, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, is whether, by God's grace, a person will believe and obey the commandments of God, and if they contravene those commandments, if they will confess and worship Him rightly. God has commanded us to do X. We must do it. And when we don't do it, we must rectify that. For Cain's offering, God had no regard. And that should have been the end of the story. If Cain had immediately rectified his failing when his offering was not accepted, or if Cain had then listened when he was warned by God to do well, lest sin rule over him, if Cain had responded and gone, okay, fix the problem, that could have been the end of the story. But this again speaks to the fact that it's not so much the offering, but the character of the one bringing it. 
Cain was angry that his offering had not been accepted, that he had not been accepted. And when called to resolve his sin, his anger, Cain refused to tragic consequences. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. In that one verse, we have the first murder of another human being. Sin had already necessitated the first death, the clothes of skins that Adam and Eve had been provided, but here the first man born in sin now murders his own brother. Why? His brother had not wronged him. Abel had not done anything wrong in this situation. His offense was acting in a way that would honor God, acting in a way that was acceptable to God. Cain and Abel come up fairly regularly throughout the rest of the Scriptures. And in 1 John 3, we've read much of it already. Starting in verse 10, it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do you remember the curse that was leveled at the serpent? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman that it seems to be that Eve had assumed was the offspring that God had promised, this one that Eve had gotten with the help of God, he had allowed to come to pass exactly what God had just warned him about, that sin would rule over him. He had been warned that if he continued in his disobedience and his faithlessness, that sin would seek to rule over him, and by what we have seen and what we have read, Cain had by his evil deeds given himself over to be not a child of God, not the child of the promise that Eve hoped him to be, but a child of the devil. And if the murder of Abel had not already in our mind cemented Cain's morally and spiritually destitute state, the following passage does. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You'll notice these regular comparisons back and forth between the story of Cain and the story of Adam. When Adam had sinned, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. It's a couched confession, but the confession is there, and he acknowledges his wrongdoing, something that Cain refuses to do. We're fond of saying that we believe that no one is too far gone to be saved by the grace of God. 
Adam is a great example of this. He is the one who, by his sin, in a perfect situation, by his sin, he has brought a curse upon all humanity, and yet God calls him to confession, to be reconciled to him. The Apostle Paul is another great example. He had been Saul, the persecutor and murderer of Christ's church, and in 1 Timothy Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The difference between Cain and Adam, between Cain and a man like Saul, who then became Paul, is the same as what is written across Scripture, that 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or Psalm 32, I acknowledge to you my sin and did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Or Jeremiah 3, speaking to Israel, return faithless Israel, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. Cain refused to acknowledge his guilt before God, even when God called him to an account. What have you done? Where is your brother? I don't know. No murderer, no idolater, no adulterer, no sinner of any kind is so far gone that the gospel of God's grace and salvation as fulfilled in Jesus cannot save them. But in order that we may be forgiven, we must confess our sin. This doesn't mean that we have to find ourselves in a confessional booth and go through and confess each and every sin by name. We don't have to go, I did this and I did this, I did this and I did this. It's the heart behind this here. And I will say that direct and personal confession of individual sins is a great way of putting sins to death. So I wouldn't encourage you to shy away from confessing your sins by name to God and even to a faithful brother or sister. But the mindset here is that we confess our sin and our sinful hearts and our attitudes. We acknowledge that our allegiances are not what they should be. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the danger arises if we become convinced that we have not, that we have not fallen short. Or maybe that we can climb out of our self-excavated hole by our own strength. We must confess our sinfulness and ask that God would rescue us, for we cannot rescue ourselves. Cain's rejected offering was symptomatic of a greater sickness in his heart. Abel's accepted offering was also symptomatic of his spiritual health. And that's why in Hebrews 11, when we get to that hall of fame of faith that we went through a while ago, we're told, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Cain's trust was not in the Lord, so his offering was rejected. Cain's trust 
was not in the Lord, so when his offering was rejected, he became very angry and his face fell. Cain's trust was not in the Lord, so Cain, instead of then fixing the problem, offering right sacrifice to God as he ought to have, instead he chose to kill the one that in his mind had upstaged him, his own brother. Cain's trust was not in the Lord, so when called to confession by the Lord, Cain denied any wrongdoing. And he incurred judgment upon himself. God was not unaware of what Adam and Eve had done in the garden. When he called to them, where are you? God knew where they were. And just so, Cain was... God was not unaware of what Cain had done. Where's your brother? God knew where Abel was. What have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This repeated refusal to confess and acknowledge his sinful condition incurs both judgment and banishment from God's people. Adam and Eve had been cast out of the garden, driven out of the garden, but as we had said, God and his promise still pursued them. And here God is still talking with Adam and Eve's offspring. They had been driven out of the garden and yet God is still present with them because they had confessed their sin and at least partially been reconciled to God. But a difference here, Cain himself now is cursed. Remember Adam and Eve, Adam, the work, the ground is cursed because of him. Eve's childbearing is cursed because of her. But the language here is very, very similar to the curse pronounced upon the snake because Cain himself has become the offspring of the snake. Now a human liar and a human murderer is cursed like the one who has become his father, the original liar and murderer of the devil. And think of it, this is a farmer who now has been cursed from the ground. His livelihood has been destroyed. It is no more. And then he is sentenced to life as a fugitive and a wanderer, being driven out of God's presence as well as being driven away from his own family. And you'd think at this point, when the hammer falls, Cain would finally get it. Finally grasp the wickedness of his own estate, his own sin. Does he finally respond in some form of repentance? God is escalating. Cain, watch out. You're angry. Just do well and you'll be accepted. And over, God calls him and calls him. And here, God drops the hammer. Does Cain get it now? My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Does Cain finally get it? Cain responds to this judgment of God with self-pity, bemoaning the severity of his own punishment. God, this is too much for me to bear. This is a punishment for murdering his own brother. And God doesn't trade him life for life. Okay, I'm going to kill you. He murdered his own brother, and all Cain can think about is, oh, this punishment is too hard. God, how could you do this to me? And even still, God, in his infinite patience, shows kindness. In his infinite mercy and grace and love, even towards this one who has utterly rejected him, God still shows mercy and kindness. He offers to Cain this reassurance of protection, marking him somehow to protect him from what would be easily seen as a just retribution for the life of Abel. It was assumed that if you killed someone in your own family that you would be driven out and then one of your previous family members would then come and kill you. But God marks him for protection. And again, we see this image that we are getting over and over again of the one who has sinned against God being driven further east, away from God's presence. As we come to a close on our passage, I hope that we can see this message that's contained here. And before we get too full of ourselves, Cain was no greater of a sinner than any one of us. He was no more deserving of condemnation than any one of us. Cain was wicked, to be sure, but so was the Apostle Paul, and so am I. Each one of us have the same sinful, wicked condition that afflicted Cain. Each one of us is capable of the same wickedness. It was Cain's faithlessness his refusal to humble his heart before God, even when given repeated opportunities to do so, that proved so poisonous to his soul and his relationship with God. Humanity has always been, from Adam and Eve forward, utterly dependent upon God to rescue us from our sin. We have needed to be saved. We didn't simply need the means by which to save ourselves. And Cain refused to acknowledge at any point his own sinfulness. Whether in his offering or to the murder of his brother or in response to God's warning and eventual judgment, he refused. And it cannot be so with us. It cannot be so with us. We mentioned earlier there is no sinner who by the virtue of their sinfulness is too far gone. None is so sinful that God cannot save him. 
For in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. To say that someone is too far gone in their sin for God to save him is to belittle the grace that He is capable of providing. The work of Jesus upon the cross is sufficient for every sin that you have committed, for every sin that you are committing right now to every sin that you are going to commit. That's why I say you don't need to get yourself into a confessional booth before you kick the bucket because you might have an unconfessed sin. The grace of our God is beyond that. But our redemption found in the blood of Christ, is dependent upon the grace of God to reveal to us our need for redemption. If we cannot and will not see that we need forgiveness, how then can we believe that we are forgiven? If we are living a life that says, I am good enough, if we are living a life that says, well, I'll just kind of tip the scales in my favor, Cain's sin is the sin of selfish pride that refuses to acknowledge that he could possibly deserve to be rebuked for his sin. That he could possibly deserve any kind of punishment. So don't be like Cain. And like Abel, we hope that each one of us, at least once we come to faith, we hope that we come from a place, a starting point of faith, by faith offering right sacrifices to God that are pleasing and acceptable to Him. Well, that right sacrifice is accomplished by Jesus Christ. But we hope that we continually offer ourselves as a pleasing sacrifice to God. But like Cain in our story, each of us is going to fail. Each of us are going to miss the mark and the difference needs to lie in our response. Me, you, all of us, we need to be prepared for the moment when we are going to run afoul of God's commands. We are going to sin, we are going to fail, and we are going to fall. Sorry if that's not good news, but we are going to. We need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared and have a right view of ourselves so that when we do sin, We don't act like Cain and say, why is God rejecting my offering? And get upset rather than turning. We need to be prepared to humble our hearts before God, to confess our sin to Him and be reconciled to Him, lest we follow in Cain's path and be cast out from God's presence. And if we are not in Christ, if we have not yet been forgiven of our sins, if we have not confessed Christ as our Lord and Savior, then our situation is all the more dire because in that situation is to already be dead in our trespasses and our sins. In that situation, we are just following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, doing exactly what Cain was doing, following the example of his spiritual father, the devil. The only hope for new spiritual life to be saved, the only hope for ongoing spiritual health 
is that we would have a right view of ourselves, a view of ourselves that says, I am nothing. I am sinful. I am wicked. I cannot earn this or do it myself. Doesn't matter whether you are unsaved and living a sinful life or you have been saved for decades and living a mostly upright life. The only hope for you and for your salvation and for your soul is to recognize that you are nothing and Jesus is everything. That we humble ourselves before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the only one that can redeem us, confess our sins, turn from them, and then live our lives to declare that to be true. The story of Cain and Abel can very easily become this kind of sad story of how things didn't go terribly well for these first two brothers. And we even call it the story of Cain and Abel. But Abel's a kind of a supporting cast member here. It is the story of Cain's refusal confess his sin before God and to acknowledge the seriousness of his sin and turn from it. And we, each one of us, need to be willing, even if we have already been saved from our sin, be willing to confess and acknowledge the seriousness of our sin, both past and ongoing, and to leave that sin before the only one who can deal with it and the only one who has dealt with it, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as MJ comes to lead us in a closing song, I'd ask that you would join with me in prayer. O oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would help us see from this example and the story of these first two brothers the desperate importance of how we deal with our sinful condition. And Lord, we thank you that if we have placed our faith in Christ, if we have confessed him as our Lord and Savior and believed in our hearts that you have raised him from the dead, that we are saved, that we are justified before you. But we would not stop there we would see ourselves sanctified, purified from all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness. And Lord, we would pray that we would take so seriously the sin that would so easily entangle us and ensnare us and pull us away from you, that we would put it to death, that we would confess it before you and leave it in your hands, and that we would turn from that sin and live according to your commandments that we would not cheapen the grace that we have been given to assume that we are saved and to go on living as if we have a life to live all on our own. But we have been brought with a price, O oh Lord, and let us live accordingly. Lord, we ask that you would give us humble hearts, eyes to see our own low estate, that we would see our Savior who was born as a man, that he would live the perfect life, that he would die the death that we deserve, that he would be raised to life and glorified to your right hand. And we would see our own low estate even 
in comparison to what Christ has done and recognize that we can do nothing and Christ has done everything and that we must beg upon Him for the strength to live according to Your commandments, that we must beg upon Him for the salvation of our souls, the cleansing from our our sin, and that we would live as followers of Christ, not followers of anyone or anything else. For Christ is the only one who has done what is needed to save us from our sin. He is the one who has earned every scrap of our life and our allegiance. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the Incarnation here at Christmas. And Lord, may our celebration of the Incarnation make us abundantly aware of our sinful estate that made that Incarnation necessary. May we glorify you with all that we say and all that we do, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.